Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome in. It's David Summers with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and it's another studcast. It's the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. It's 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Please welcome the originator of the studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. We step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee stud. Ron Fuller. I was going to say, how's it going down there, Ron? But now you're not, you're not down there. You're, you're up there. Yeah. Yeah. I've kind of moved a little bit further North Dave. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so <laughs> I've actually, you know, uh, for the first time in 20 years, uh, I've come back to Tennessee, going to set up shop here and, you know, I'm, uh, looking forward to it. And and I've been here for just a few days. I haven't been here very long, but uh, wow, it's just been beautiful. Really, really nice. And and uh, it's kind of great to be home, to be honest with you. It's pretty amazing. I enjoyed the ride, and I've taken that ride before from the Tampa Bay area all the way up into the hills of Tennessee. It's about a 12-hour drive, maybe a little bit more. But going from, I mean, just the beautiful area you were in the St. Petersburg area to uh, and beaches, to the Smoky Mountains. Man, what a difference in terrain and what a difference in just just the air that you breathe. Oh, yeah, man. It, it is totally different. Uh, you know, you've you got no humidity here uh, as compared to down there in Florida. Uh, <laughs> that, that humidity will kill you down there, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, they used to have winter down there. You used to have summer there just, uh, you know, nine months out of the year. But now in the last couple of years, they have winter for 12 months. I mean, uh, summer, it's just hot and uh, sultry and you get that wind out of the Caribbean and wow, it's, it's, it's really tough. And this is totally different and, uh, just really, really nice to be back home, man. So, well, so is this like a, a return to home? Are you, are you done down in St. Pete? I know you'll probably go back and visit from time to time, but are you officially a resident of Tennessee? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I have a, a temporary place here. I'm in the process of uh, getting a cabin built for me. Going to take a while, you know, uh, and I'm going to be in this place for a few months. But then uh, then I'm going to be uh, uh, hopefully in a brand new cabin and, uh, and up on a mountain where I'm going to have a great view. And, you know, but any place you are in, these, in this part of the country, it's beautiful. I've got a little stream looking out the window at it now right beside me and you know, a little waterfall. Uh, it's just, it's really a nice, nice atmosphere. Great to be back home, man. 
Yeah, and I'm sure you're going to rub it in week to week as as you get that cabin bill. So, hey, congratulations, though. That's uh, that's awesome. You worked hard for this. So I know you're going to enjoy being back home. So that's that's awesome, Stud. Yep, yeah, I'm uh, I'm really enjoying it and uh, looking forward to it. Uh, you know, and uh, gosh, we got a great one today. I've been I've been looking forward to this particular Studcast for quite a while. You know, I check numbers every once in a while uh, just to see how we're doing. And and I was blown away by the last numbers I saw, how fast we have been growing. We're becoming uh, one of the fastest growing wrestling podcasts out there. And, uh, you know, and, I, and you deserve some of that credit, my man. I can't uh, vouch for all the horses that you get saddled up, <laughs> but uh, you sure do a good job other than other than your horses, man. Yeah, uh, thanks. So, thanks for that. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, just, uh, it's been really, really good. We're just really, really growing fast. You know, uh, I did the first three episodes of my stud cast in the state of Tennessee. I came to Knoxville and did it with uh, – with a gentleman here in Knoxville. And yeah. then uh, I've done the basically the last 193 episodes from Florida. And by golly, we're going to do number 196 today, which is going to be, I think, a classic stud cast. And we're going to do it from Tennessee. In fact, Dave, I'm 21 miles away from where the old animal hauler was that went into the Great Smoky Mountains and Brutus got out of. Wow. And uh, created all that havoc and panic <laughs> in that worldwide story, man, that's just really taken off. I'm 21 miles from that entrance to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Uh, and uh, it's just really hard to describe the beauty, man, in this part of the country. I call it God's country. You know, I mean, it just really is amazing. And and for those people out there that's never seen it before and never been here before, I highly recommend, man. A visit, not just to this area, but to that park itself. And uh, and in one trip, uh, I don't care who you are, you're going to realize why that's the most visited national park in America. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place to live. Oh, absolutely. We've enjoyed visiting many times, vacation and otherwise. It's, it is so absolutely beautiful. Now, we've got a long ride ahead of us for today, Ron. So my horse, Tenderfoot Tom, is, is raring to go. So let's get mounted up and let's get on the trail. Well, okay, you know, I'm already go-to, man, but, uh, you know, you, you make it hard for me not to be a little skeptical, man, about those horses' names. Dave. Here we go. You know, uh, that, that today's ride is a long one, like you said, and uh, I'm just hoping that uh, it's it, – I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried about a horse named Tenderfoot, but mm. you're already up on him, man, and you're ready to ride. So <laughs> let's just jump right into this boy today. I'm uh, all for it. Let's do it. All right, so we're we're riding today into another stud cast, obviously, and I want to welcome everybody today to this one because to me, I think this is going to be a really special stud cast. We're going to take a deep dive into every aspect of the historical Thursday night of April 27, 1977. Southeastern on that night presented one of the best cards ever. Without a doubt, it was the all-time best card in Knoxville's history prior to Southeastern. They'd never seen anything like this before Southeastern came. And this lineup of stars uh, may have been one of the best in wrestling history, period. It's really a solid card, uh, solid enough to set the all-time attendance record for a sports event in the Knoxville Coliseum. 
And uh, that record still stands 44 years after the date that uh, took place. Wow. So, uh, it was a big night in so many ways. And, and as I mentioned last week, the Studcast, this one is going to have no today's training in it. It's got no learning tree in this one. It's got a different format. It's entirely dedicated to this one single event. The building was set up for a maximum seating capacity, the biggest setup ever in that building. And this maximum capacity seating would become the standard format for every wrestling event following this one that we're going to talk about. This night's attendance, however, would never be broken again because this event had a large number of standing room only tickets sold that would never be allowed again by the Knoxville Fire Marshal. I mean, he wasn't there. And uh, we got by with uh, selling a few tickets that we probably wouldn't be able to sell anymore. And we would never be able to, to surpass the crowd that we drew on this particular event. And in addition to the massive crowd, there were no absolute estimates of the number of fans turned away. There were so many people on the, out on the lobby area, the back patio of the Coliseum uh, that couldn't get in that, uh, you know, the manager they really took a guess at it uh, when we talked at the end of the night. He said he figured that 3,000 people were on that patio that got sent home that couldn't get in the building. Wow, that, that's what the Coliseum manager said? Yeah, he, you know, that was his prediction. Yeah. I asked him, how many people do you think we turned away? And he said at one time he thought as many as 3,000 were outside. And they couldn't get into the, uh, the area, the big massive area where you bought your tickets at. They couldn't even get into there. So let's, let's begin today with the preparations they had to do to get ready for this special night in April of 1977. All right. So, I mean, that has to hurt when you, when you realize that you're potentially turning away 3,000 folks. That's amazing. All right. Last studcast, you talked to briefly about adding new ringside seats to the number that were available the Friday night before this event. So how did that go? Well, you know, and, and you're right. We did speak about that a little bit last week. And on, on the last week's studcast, we set a new attendance record of 5,600. And the only way we were going to get past that number was we had to add some ringside seats on the downstairs floor. Permanent seats were all in the upper levels. No way to add seats up there. So we went, and uh, the manager of the building and I, we put in 480 more ringside seats for this event, then uh, that put us just over 2,000 people on the floor of that arena, all those ringside. So my goal at this point, uh, you know, I expected we were going to have a big crowd. I had no idea how big it was going to be. But my goal was to demolish the all-time box office record for any wrestling event ever in that part of the country. And to do that, we had to break that Terry Funk NWA world title card on uh, October 10th of 1976, and uh, that house was a gross of just over $30,000. So the prices for this event were raised $1 per seat in the upper level of the Coliseum. That's exactly what it was the same price for the Terry Funk title match in the October, six months or so earlier. And on that Terry Funk title day, I had for the first time ever charged $10 for the first row ringside seats. I call those seats a golden circle. That was the name I gave it. And uh, this time I decided that we were going to do even better. And I doubled 
that first row price from $10 a ticket, Dave, to $20 a ticket. Okay. And then I also extended the golden circle, added two more rows to it, and I charged $10 each for those two rows. So my first row is $20. My next two are $10. And then the regular prices fell in at that point, which was about uh, all the prices, even the other ringside that were left. The cheapest uh, ringside seat was $8. So it was a pretty significant increase in ringside prices. And that was going to give me an average ticket price for the event of $7 a seat. And that and today's money would be $31 a seat in that building for that event. Wow. And so we'll get to that later on. But, uh, yeah, in 1977, uh, an average of $7 a ticket would be equal $31 in today's money. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Yeah, that's knocking it down right there. So it sounds like the box office and the building were ready. So where did you where did you focus next? Well, I'd created the best possible card for this huge April 1977 event. And to do so, I had to look to the other side of the state to ask Jerry Jarrett for a little bit of help from his territory on the west side of Tennessee. My grandfather at this point had retired, and his departure, after more than 40 years of building wrestling across the south, uh, left a war for the old Tennessee territory. Jerry Jarrett had been running Memphis and smaller cities on the western side of the state. He ran Louisville and Lexington, Kentucky, and Evansville, Indiana. On the central part of the state, Nick Goulas ran Chattanooga, he ran Nashville, he ran Birmingham, and northern Alabama. They had been running that way for a long time. And Roy, while he was there, he had control of both partners, and he tied both ends together for many years. He, he kept it as a single territory. And that all started to fall apart in 1977 because Goulas and Jerry Jarrett started a war to see who was going to actually maybe own it all. Uh, so I'd never been able to get along very well with Nick Goulas. And I had worked for Jerry Jarrett in Memphis as his Southern heavyweight champion in 1975. It was my first year with Southeastern Wrestling. I just opened the company. And he had also worked some for me in Southeastern. And he uh, came several times with the old famous Japanese star in Tennessee, Tojo Yamamoto, who was his partner. And uh, Jarrett sent me Lawler on several occasions and, uh, and some job boys for TV pretty often. So when their 1977 war began, Nick Goulas came after Jerry in uh, Memphis first. And uh, Jerry needed help, just as I needed some stars for this big show. And so what we did is we started exchanging talent for several months during this time frame. Me mostly, uh, you know, I seemed to have a better crew than he did at that time. And I was sending him more guys than he was probably sending me. By doing this swap and by exchanging some talent, we could significantly enhance each other's cards. And on occasion, by swapping, we didn't swap just the talent. Well, we actually swapped belts and championships on big events. So, uh, you know, we really had had some a good idea, and it was working. It was helping him win his war in Memphis. It was helping me at the same time to build Southeastern into a real monster of a territory. And it was always a great idea to, to have his champions come in on big cards like this one that we're going to talk about today and come in and lose their belts to my top guys. And uh, then the following week, I'd send 
those new champions, the guys that had won his belts, back across the state to Memphis to lose to his guys. So it made our wrestlers stronger at home because we beat other champions, even though they weren't as well-known as the guys in our territory. And this worked well before cable TV, before there was very little crossover or local TV fans. Uh, Fans back in those days were a heck of a lot less knowledgeable about other territories' talent than nowadays. You know, before cable TV, most fans didn't know any wrestlers or any wrestling other than the ones in their part of the country. I'm exactly one of those, especially as a younger kid, not realizing that something like that was happening in another town. So, But I've never really heard of the sharing deal like that. I can see how effective that that must have been. Plus, it also allowed fans, as you said, to see other stars that they didn't get to see very often. But I can't wait to hear who was on this record-setting card of April 17th of 77 and how you used some of his talent on that. I think that's going to be interesting. Yes. Let's give everybody a look at that card, Dave. Uh, I think it's time we talk about it. You know, you're going to have a tremendous card when you're able to call the event the Parade of Champions. And it had five total championship matches on this card. Two of those were world title matches. So another way you know it was going to be a great card is when it opens with a guy like Tony Charles wrestling against a Norvell Austin. I mean, very first match. Wow. Tremendous match. Main event in a lot of cities around the country. And uh, second match on the card was Bob Orton Jr. against Dick Steinborn. And the rest of the card was all championship matches. And this fantastic card was the first major swap of talent and belts between Jared and I. We had just gotten started with it. I said, Jerry, help me on this one. We're going to start working together on this. So the first swap began when the Von Steigers won their Southeastern belts back the Friday before this big event, which takes place on a Thursday night. On the Friday before, they wrestled Bob Armstrong and Robert, who were the tag champions at that point. They won their belts back. And it's the same night, same card as the night I beat Terry Funk. So three days later, on Monday, April 24th, 1977, the Von Steigers flew to Memphis, and they lost their Southeastern belts to Jarrett's hot babyface team of Tommy Wildfire Rich and the Australian Bill Dundee. It was a big shot in the arm for Jerry. These are two really good German wrestlers, not been there, champions, going in with nice-looking belts, and all of a sudden, they lose to his top babyface team. You know, and especially big since he was in a war here with Goulas and his card was able to put a couple of big stars on it that never been there before. So Iron Fusion, a great talent, was going to make it extremely difficult for Nick because Nick didn't have great talent and he was never going to have an impact or hurt Jerry in, in Memphis or in Jerry's territory because we were giving him some help. So the first championship match on the Parade of Champions night was the new Southeastern Tag Champions. Now these guys have come back. They have beaten the Germans over in Memphis. They arrived back on the Parade of Champions, and they are now the Southeastern Heavyweight Champions. And they're defending their belt against the guys that uh, they beat, the Von Steigers. And it's the Von Steigers' return match. So my fans in Knoxville are getting to see a top team with Bill Dundee and Tommy Rich from another territory. It's uh, going to help my night, too. 
And the next, uh, you know, next championship match on the card involved another talent swap. And this title match was for the Southern Heavyweight Championship of Jerry Lawler, and he was against Bob Armstrong. Mm -hmm. So Jerry Lawler had been there a few times. He was a great star at this point, a really, really good wrestler. And uh, so there's another key element in there. It's somebody that's not normally on the card, and he's adding to this card as well. And this swap started with Jerry Lawler defending his Southern Heavyweight title against Bob Armstrong on a night of champions. Bob wins, and then he flies to Memphis on Saturday, April 29th, a couple of days after this big event. He works TV. He works for Jared on a Saturday night there. He stays over until Monday, and Jerry Lawler wins his Southern Championship back from Bob Armstrong uh-huh. in Memphis. Wow. Okay. So all of a sudden, we got stuff going on big time. Fans don't know what's going on, but uh, it's working for both companies. The next title match on that card was the Mongolian Stomper, defending his Southeastern belt against my brother, Robert. Then comes the back-to-back world title matches. Nelson Royal defends his World Junior Heavyweight Championship against Jimmy Golden. And Jimmy had won the right for that match the Friday night before by beating Bob Orton Jr. to get the shot at Nelson Royal. Uh, Golden and Royal, they hadn't wrestled each other since January 30th. 1977 in the Coliseum, and that match went a one-hour draw. So, you know, this is a great match, two great talents, and uh, the last time they wrestled, they wrestled to an hour draw. (laughs) And uh, so that first world championship match is going to be a great one. The last match of the night was going to be my match against the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, Harley Race, for the 10 pounds of gold. Wow. Now, that's a special card right there. That was a big-time event for any city in the world. Seven matches in all, and correct me on this, five were championship matches? That's pretty cool right there, right? Five? Five five championship matches. Uh, (laughs) I don't think that had ever happened in Knoxville before. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, (laughs) maybe going to happen in the future sometimes. The Southeastern continues to grow. But uh, it was a tremendous card, biggest card. That had ever been in Knoxville, no doubt. That's awesome. All right, so back on the trail. Where to now? Well, we're riding into one of the biggest TV shows that was ever in Southeastern. Uh, and you know, when you got a great card like we got for this, there's always a major benefit to it. And usually, you're going to have a lot of great talent that's in town and available for your TV show. And that TV show is going to lead up to that big card. So this is what happened on this TV. Uh, Southeastern TV show was also a parade of champions for the first time ever four championship matches on TV in one show. All right. So wait one second. Did you say four championship matches now on a TV show? Now that's about as special as the big event itself. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it was, Dave. I mean, you know, it, it was as big as the big event itself. Uh, and, and it may have been the biggest card and TV over a five-day period of time in the history. In my history as a wrestling promoter, I don't know that there ever was a bigger card or television within a five-day period of time. And the TV opened up, obviously, with a close-up of Les, as always. And he was announcing at the matches that's going to be on this Super TV. He announces there's going to be four live championship matches on the show. And two videos in this program. 
So the TV was now regularly packed like the Coliseum crowds were. There were three rows of chairs on three sides of the ring. It's a studio, but we had more chairs than most studios were able to put in there. And then we were starting to put overflow fans that couldn't sit in the chairs. They stood behind those people sitting in the chairs and they were side by side, wall to wall, all the way back to the wall of the studio. I mean, we were packing people. We were getting probably more than 200 people into a television studio, which was really, really much better than any place in the country. There were very few places other than Florida, maybe, that had their own building and their own little television arena. But uh, we were really putting a lot of bodies in there. And every one man in the studio on this day, they are ready. And especially after they hear less announced that there's going to be four championship matches live on the show. So when the cameras back away, uh, I sat there next to Les. The big still shot on the screen behind us, the one we used every week, was of me. And I had my hand raised, and I was standing over Terry Funk, who was looking up at me, got his expression in that shot too, and he was kind of stunned, man. Uh, And the studio got their first pop of the day once they saw that shot. A lot of them had seen that match, but, uh, you know, the day before, but, uh, you know, they, they reacted to it just like they hadn't seen it. So Les Welcome congratulated me for the huge win the night before, and he asked the director to back up the video to where Terry Funk was really working on my right leg. And when Funk started uh, on his family's famous uh, finish hold, the spinning toe hold on me, He made a couple of spins, and then I reached up. I wrapped my arm around his head. I rolled his body forward into a perfect small package. And uh, when I got the three count, the studio erupted, just like the thousands in the Coliseum had the night before. It was (laughs) like, wow, they were really, really into this television show. And then there was a whole lot more still to come in this TV show uh, that we got quickly out of the video. Les, uh, you know, thank me for being there. And uh, he invited me to come back later in the show. And then he threw it up to the ring to Phil Rainey, the TV, and the Coliseum ring announcer for the first match of the TV. And Tommy Gilbert and Don Wright were in the ring already. And they were being announced uh, when the Southeastern Tag Champions, the Von Steigers, entered the studio to a roar of booze, man. They had regained their belts from Bob Armstrong and Robert Fuller the night before. And Norvell accompanied them to the ring. He was mainly the man most responsible for the Germans being being able to beat Rob and uh, Bob. And uh, Ron Wright was supposed to have been in Bob and Rob's corner, but he on that card had wrestled a Mongolian stomper for the Southeastern Championship, and he had gotten injured. So he couldn't come out for that match. Norvell took advantage of it, and that's how the Germans won their belts back from Rob and Bob. So it was a great opening match for TV, boy. I tell you, uh, Tommy Gilbert was a great little worker, again, a star over on the western side of the state. Don Wright uh, was there taking up for his brother that had been injured the night before. And uh, Norvell Austin comes out with the Germans, and he gets involved in the match just like he did the night before. So after they got a victory, the Germans got themselves a victory on TV, and then uh, Austin went with them, and they went to the set. They had an interview then. We were going to hear from Memphis 
an interview that had been sent in with Tommy Wildfire Rich and the Australian Bill Dundee. So Austin goes to the set with them, and they brag about being champions again, naturally. And uh, Les pointed out right away, though, that, that Austin wasn't going to be in their corner uh, next Thursday night on the Parade of Champions and that uh, they were going to have to win the match uh, fair and square if they were going to win it. The Von Steigers, obviously, were defending against the Southern champions. That was Jerry's team there. His best babyface team was Wildfire Tommy Rich and Australian Bill Dundee. They were the Southern heavyweight champions, and they were going to actually, as I said earlier, they were going to come in as champions in the meantime, between this time and the time uh, following Thursday, they will have been beaten by Tommy Rich and Bill Dundee. And Tommy Rich and Bill Dundee are going to show up for the Parade of Champions. And there are the Southeastern champions. Both the Germans felt really secure that they could beat this team. They didn't need uh, Norvell out there with them. They said uh, one of them, instead of calling him Wirefire, they said one of them's on fire and the other's a dumb Aussie. <laughs> <laughs> Then Les, uh, obviously, uh, they're there. He, he cut away to the pre-recorded video from Memphis with the Southern Tag Champions, Rich and Dundee. And uh, they were very humble, proud to be on this huge card. They really put the card over. And they said they, they really relished the opportunity to be the first team ever to win both of the major tag championships in that part of the country. I don't think any tag team combination had ever been both Southern and Southeastern tag champions at the same time. And as I mentioned earlier, Rich and Dundee actually won those Southeastern tag belts two days after this TV in Memphis. They came to the Parade of Champions wearing the Southeastern tag belts. Up next on the loaded card on television, Les invited in the new English sensation, Tony Charles. They watched a highly edited version of the Four Corners match Charles had won the night before. And uh, it was his Southeastern debut. And it showed Tony beating all three of the four corners. It's a four corners match. You could beat one, maybe you might beat two, but he ended up beating all three of the opponents that were in that four corners match. And fans just seemed to instantly gravitate to Tony, man. They loved his accent. And, uh, and Tony had such a cheerful personality. But, boy, they were going to soon love his tremendous wrestling ability even more than his personality. So after the video, Les threw it to the ring. In the ring stood a guy that was a Southern favorite for many, many years, a star in the South named Jackie Fargo. He was introduced, and he awaited the introduction of his Southern heavyweight champion opponent, Jerry the King Lawler. Mm -hmm. So. Fans booed the king, you know, he'd, he'd wrestled several times in Knoxville since Southeastern's arrival, but he pretty quickly took care of business and he, and he beat uh, Jackie Fargo right in the middle of the ring. So Lawler came to the set. He had the next interview. Bob Armstrong, who was Lawler's opponent for the Southern Heavyweight Championship belt on the Parade of Champions, was in Studio B. So these guys had a lot of history between them. They had swapped belts for the past couple of years, back and forth, Southern belt. Uh, on one occasion, Lawler won the Southeastern belt. Lawler, at this point in his career, he was becoming a true star, and he was a great interviewer. He started it off with the interview he did, and he finished it with the insult. Started with an insult to Bob Armstrong, and he finished with another big insult. 
But Bob, as always, he's in Studio B. He was ready as usual. And he said he was happy to be part of this tremendous card. And uh, he was going to get the distinct pleasure of beating the sorriest champion of the night, Jerry Lawler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the crowd loved that man. you know and they said that southeastern fans were going to be treated to seeing jerry lawler the biggest punk in wrestling do his thing next thursday night and by doing his thing he said something about he's going to ball like a baby after i take the southern heavyweight belt from him wow. <laughs> these first two matches were not just great champions but strong competitors as well, Ron, it Jackie Fargo, one of the famous Fargo brothers, of course, with his brother Don. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you are not sparing any expense for this TV, right? Yeah, you know, I I wanted I wanted to have something that was really going to lead up and into that following Thursday night, and uh, and yeah, I pay, I spent a little money on this one that I probably didn't do regularly, but uh, you know. You you just get you you seem to be getting sharper, Dave. You know, I mean, every stud cast. You know, I think your horse, old Tenderfoot Tom, though, he seems to be keeping up better than most of your horses do, man. Maybe you got to got to hang on to that one, maybe a little bit. You know, yeah. it wasn't easy to get Jackie Fargo, and uh, you know, but it's even more difficult to get in a star like Jackie Fargo to do a job and get beat on TV. Fargo called me when he heard about my card and he says, you got Lawler on your TV over there. And him and Jackie, uh, Jackie Fargo and Jerry Lawler were really, really close friends. Hmm. And uh, Jackie says, Ron, I want to come over there and I want to do a job for Jerry on TV. Uh, I was like, wow. <laughs> oh, man, what a great match you guys will have for one thing. And then, you know, what a great win that'll be for Lawler. So, uh, this TV is off to a tremendous start. Wow. So he's going to help put Lawler over big time. That's pretty cool right there. So th this TV becoming a classic, no doubt. It seems like a good place to take a break. Let's do that. My guess is we're going we're gonna to be coming back after the break with the personality profile. So who was on it? Well, who else, my man? You know, a big show, uh, the NWA World Heavyweight he, Champion, Harley Race. He's the king. All right. So that's coming up. Stay with us. This Studcast will continue in a moment right here. Super Studcast number 40, part one, is loaded with stars. Two Hall of Famers, the Honky Talk Man and Jerry Briscoe, plus Kevin Sullivan, the Lord Humongous, Les Thatcher, and Ron's crazy brother, Robert Fuller, Colonel Rob Parker, and Tennessee Lee all congratulate the stud for his upcoming Studcast number 200. The conversations are electric and cover much more than the historic number 200. Get Super Studcast number 40 today at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Part two will have seven more stars with other Hall of Famers. Everyone wants to pay tribute to the man now known as wrestling's best storyteller. Don't miss Super Studcast number 40 at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three plus hours, only $2.99. The best deal in wrestling. And the stud wants your help. If you have an idea for Studcast number 200, look for his post on Facebook and Twitter now to leave your suggestions. If he picks your idea, he'll recognize you on air with him on that very special 200th Studcast. It's only one month away from the magic number 200. Stun the stud now with your idea. Hey, we are back. And don't forget, TN Stud 
TNStud.com. That's the home of the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. At TNStud.com, you'll find so much, a ton of photos in the gallery. There are videos, and then there are videos on DVD that you can buy so you can own the history of wrestling. TNStud.com is also the home to every studcast and every super studcast. TNStud.com, that is the home of the Tennessee stud. All right, Rod, we're back. So I've been waiting on hearing about what Harley had to say because you got him coming up for the big title defense. So uh, let's go there now. Let's get that done. Okay. Uh, yeah, you you got old tenderfoot, man. You got him moving good, you know. Uh, so, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump right on it, man. Rain him in a little bit. We're gonna jump right on a uh, Harley race here and find out what he's got to say. Cool. So this was nineteen seventy seven. It was long before cable TV and fans being able to see stars from other parts of the country. Wrestling magazines were basically the place to go if you wanted to find out about what was happening in different parts of the country and different parts of the world so far as professional wrestling was concerned. Southeastern wrestling had only seen one match. Fans had only seen one match on TV. That was the win that uh, Harley had over Terry Funk when he won the world championship. And uh, that's the only match they'd ever seen of Harley on the Southeastern show. And uh, if they missed that match and they missed a couple of uh, recent shows that had interviews from Harley, they weren't going to have any idea what Harley race looked like. So he sent an interview for this show, for this personality profile from Stu Hart's territory in Calgary, Canada. And uh, Harley was no dummy. Uh, I, I had to say that for him, you know, he opened the interview by speaking directly to Les Thatcher and paying him a compliment and saying Southeastern's TV show and commentator was one of the best in the world. Wow. Which was nice. You know, I, I like that part of it too. And, uh, and Les was on the profile by himself. So he, in return, he put Harley over big time and he threw in a couple of facts about why Harley, he thought well, Harley was one of the greatest of all time. And uh, Harley's interview kind of took it from there. Harley had a distinctly different approach on his interviews. He was almost an exact opposite to the previous NWA champion, Terry Funk. Harley was calm and direct, uh, straight to the point. He spoke very highly of me, oddly enough, mm-hmm. uh, telling listeners that he'd been keeping up with what was going on in Southeastern that that area down there was full of fantastic wrestlers, many of which would have made strong opponent for him, that he wasn't at all surprised that I beat Terry Funk the night before mm. and that I was the one of only a few that had ever beaten him. And he said, I looked forward to the match and he expected it to be a very hard fought match. He continued on uh, in the same vein, in a way. He put my family over. He, he said something about the Welchers were some of the toughest wrestlers that ever lived. And I was not just the biggest, but I was maybe the best yet in my family. And then he held up that beautiful 10 pounds of gold belt, held it out in front of him, and he told me to have a good look because this was the closest I would ever get to it. <laughs> <laughs> that he intended to come to Tennessee next Thursday and stop the stud dead in his tracks. Wow. Because he said, uh, Harley Race, I'm the baddest man on God green earth. 
(laughs) He never raised his voice the entire interview. But, wow, I watched it from the studio uh, from up, up top in the director's booth and uh <laughs> I, I got goosebumps listening to his, wow. his interview man and, and yeah. i could just feel by listening to it that, that he was leaving a lasting impression on everybody out there was watching that day if they'd never seen him before they got a real good feel for what he was all about and if they had seen him before they knew what they were going to see come thursday so he set the stage for a monumental Southeastern wrestling night five days later. Wow. Dude, you talk about two personalities. You talk about funk and then Harley race. And Harley doesn't have to raise his voice. I think that you were talking about goosebumps. Man, that's awesome. So really, and the contrast between those two and then how Terry Funk really can put you over any way he wants. And then Harley race can do it in a softer voice. So that's, dude, wrestling fans had to be on the edge of their seats and the, ready for this deal in the Coliseum five days later. That's, that's pretty cool right there. All right, where to next? Well, uh, we, we got it loaded, man. Like I said, this TV is loaded. We got another world champion on television wrestling, a world junior heavyweight champion, Nelson Roy. And uh, in my opinion, he's also one of the best of all times, man. He, he was a tremendous worker. I put Rip Smith who was a great young star, man. And he is really getting over with Southeastern fans. And I put Rip Smith in the ring across from Nelson Royal on TV. I mean, these are the kind of matches you're going to see in a building, but you're not going to see on television. And uh, Royal really showed everybody oh, his power and his moves. But Rip Smith hung right with him. I mean, he was right there wrestling-wise. Royal was not making Rip Smith look bad. And then on the end of the match, Royal kind of showed his true self, man. He suddenly just gave up the wrestling part of it, and he switched into a nasty heel that he was really good at when he wanted to. And uh, he really punished poor Rip Smith for the remainder of that match. In fact, on the end of it, he pulled him up twice when he had him pinned. And uh, just to continue working on him. Now, Jimmy Golan was great friends with Rip Smith. And Jimmy's wrestling Nelson Royal the following Thursday night. And obviously, he's in the studio. He's about to make an interview. And he's watching the match. And he watched him pull a rip up twice. And he couldn't take it. He came to the ringside. And boy, when he came in that studio, that they exploded. And their crowd just went crazy. And Jimmy was about to get in the ring, and uh, Royal saw it that he was about to get in the ring, and he snatched Rip up, and he piledrived him, and he got the three count. Just at the three count, Jimmy shot up in the ring, and old Royal, man, he was an old wily veteran. He, he slid smoothly, just like a snake out the far side of the ring, man. But he never ran. He just stood there, and he looked at Jimmy. Jimmy's, you know, bent over Rip who's down and, and, and selling. And uh, this uh, Royal just looked at Golan and just smiled at him, laughed and smiled and uh, got tremendous heat. Wow, it was just a really, really great moment. So Nelson Royal went to the set with Les for the next interview and a couple of young wrestlers helped rip out of the ring and Jimmy went into Studio B. So Royal was cocky and arrogant. Uh, he, he made great heel interview. 
And he, he had reason to be cocky and arrogant. He was kind of cut from the same cloth as Harley Race. He was double tough and he was dangerous, man, as a wrestler. So Royal reminded Golden in his part of the interview of how blown up Jimmy was uh, <laughs> in that championship match they had three months earlier in the Coliseum, how empty his tank was, you know. And then he's told Jimmy, he says, uh, but you don't need to worry about that this time. He says, it ain't going to go that long. He turned to Les and he said, I never liked that punk, Jimmy. Go. <laughs> he said, well, what he had just done to Golden's friend, he said, that's exactly what I'm going to do to Jimmy Golden on Thursday night, but even worse. So, again, the stage was kind of set. Uh, Jimmy answered back with Fireman. He's in Studio B. He called Royal a bitter and old nasty man, you know, and that his career should have ended years ago. He <laughs> believe he was still able to wrestle, you know. <laughs> and Jimmy told him that he that he came from the same bloodline of all the Welch family, and he intended next Thursday to do something no one else had been able to do for the last five years, wow. beat Nelson Royal for the World Junior Heavyweight Championship. The studio just popped, man. They erupted. Back-to-back world champions on TV. I bet that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen very often in, in any territory, I would think, Ron. No, no, it sure don't, Dave. TV it, especially. You know, it uh, it definitely didn't. And, uh, you know, we were doing a lot of things, man, back in those days that were uh, different than other places in the world. And uh, the show was going to close out the Mongolian Stomper, a young but game Mike Stallings, another great young worker who's pretty well over in Southeastern, is going to be in the ring with the Mongolian Stomper. These are two more great opponents, Rip Smith and Mike Stallings, for two big, nasty heels. And, uh, you know, we really put, gave them a tremendous television here. And Stomper, though, he charged into the studio alone. And he just went straight into the ring. And Don was chasing him. <laughs> and he, he was screaming. He was trying, it appeared like he was trying to stop the stomper. And, uh, you know, they were still obviously having some kind of problems. Even though the stomper had won back his Southeastern Championship, he still was having a problem with Don Carson. And uh, the Mongolian machine, as I used to call him, was a, he was like a man possessed, man. Uh, he shot in that ring. And Phil Rainey, who was the announcer, was horrified of the stomper. And as soon as Stomper shot in the ring, Phil didn't even introduce him. He stopped his introduction and he dived out on the floor almost head first <laughs> to yeah. try to get out of the ring and away from Stomper. And Stomper just went straight to Stallings, man. He shot him in the ropes, man. He booted him in the stomach with that big old size 15 foot. He ran over to the ropes and he came back and he stomped him in the face three or four times and he pinned him. It was kind of like Stomper had seen all of this talent and he wanted to create his own impression at the end of this show. And that was probably what the case was because uh, Archie was that type of guy. So Stomper went into Studio B for the last interview of the show. And uh, Carson scrambled along behind him trying to keep up with him. And uh, Robert and I, we went to the set with Les as for the last interview of the show. Carson opened uh, the interview, opened it up right away. And he was very short with what he had to say. It was something to the effect that he warned Robert that his stomper was on a rampage now that he had his belt back and that he no longer could control him. And that's just what it looked like all day. Uh, that 
And since the stomper hit the studio, there was no way Carson was doing anything to control him at all. And that stomper was mad now, basically, and I can't control him anymore. And that he was not going to be responsible for what might happen to Robert Fuller next Thursday night. So Robert and I both sitting there to sit, and then we had about a minute and a half left, and Rob was brief. He said, I hope the fans listen to this because uh, this is going to have a real impact on this evening, uh, that card. Rob said, it might make no sense to fans, but something fantastic is going to happen next Thursday night in my match with the Stomper. He guaranteed he was going to leave the ring with the belt as the new Southeastern champion. Then I had about one minute left to close out the show. And and I told fans that I, I wish my grandfather could be there Thursday night, along with my father, who was going to be there. Uh, there were two more family members that were going to be there to see this world championship match that I'd been wrestling for about seven years now. And, and I had beaten former world champions, Luthez and Pat O'Connor. I beat Jack Briscoe and Terry Funk uh, while they were world champions right there in Knoxville, <laughs> both of them, and had the 10 pounds of gold handed to me twice and then taken away from me. And uh, then I finished it with a true story about my oldest son, who just happened to be having his sixth birthday six days later. The morning after my match with Harley Race was going to be his birthday. Wow. And, uh, and I told fans that I was going to give my son the ultimate birthday present the morning after this world championship match with Harley Race, that I'd beaten Harley before and I was going to do it again. And this time, no one was going to take the title from me after it was over. That Friday morning, the day after this match, I was going to lay that 10 pounds of gold belt on my son's bed before he woke up. That I was going to fulfill my family's legacy. I was going to be the next NWA champion of the world. Wow. You talk about Babe Ruth making a commitment for a home run. That's that's fascinating stuff right there, Ryan. All right. So where do we ride to next? Well, Dave, I hate to do this to you, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that we're, we're running into a normal hour or maybe a little bit beyond that already. And, uh, and uh, I hate to have to say it and uh, to the listeners out there, but I got a whole lot left. Uh, I got maybe almost another stud cast more before it's, I finish with this this special night that we're talking about here. Yeah, it kind of seems like it. I, I can't believe we're going to do this. To, you're going to do this to us again, aren't you, Ron? So it's been a long time since you left us hanging, but we're used to being hung out to dry, maybe completely. So, all right. So what's going to happen? <laughs> well, well, I'm kind of glad you put it that way, Dave. It has been a lot of stud cast since I've hung, hung you out to dry. Right. Okay. Yeah, I've been finishing my stud cast each one uh, pretty much as it should. But I kind of knew in this one, it's going to be hard. And I knew that there wasn't going to be the time. So then uh, this stud cast is so special to me. And the story that created it is, is so special too. And, and I want to be able to tell fans out there everything I can remember about this and just as I could remember it. So, you know, we, we've not talked even about any of the results of these seven matches. I mean, I can't quit now and not tell you what happened in this. So, you know, next week, 
I'm going to talk about the seven matches from this spectacular card. And uh, there's so many things that happened during the course of this night that I don't want to rush myself and I don't want to leave anything out. Uh, and uh, we've not gotten to the enormous crowd that not only packed the building inside, but left thousands on the Coliseum patio and shut down traffic uh, in the Coliseum area for miles. I mean, <laughs> it was it was an awesome event. So we need to talk about the largest crowd ever to see a sports event in the Knoxville Coliseum. And a record that still stands, uh, almost exactly 44 years to the day after this match happened. Pretty amazing. It's almost exactly the same week. And we've not discussed the gate. We're not, uh, we're not only the largest uh, Southeastern wrestling history, uh, but it's been the history of the sports event in that building. We've not talked about the gate and the money. I want to tell fans about how much the wrestlers made on this night. And I think that's really, really important. And we need to cover my personally paying Harley. And, and it created this payoff, created a bond between me and Harley that lasted for the rest of my career wow. and, and, and his. And, uh, and then I've not gotten any of my father's bringing his entire wrestling training camp by bus almost 400 miles across the state to see this match, to see this event. And, and much less to even talk about the, there's a provocative conversation that takes place that night after this is over that changed my life. It set me on a path to tremendous success in the future. It made me a better promoter, uh, an entrepreneur, a better entrepreneur, a better overall businessman. I, I want to talk about all that. I want fans to know what happened and how this affected my future. And then there was one very special thing that happened that night that no one expected. And I always loved to wow fans. I always loved to give them something that they were never going to forget that happened. And by golly, it happened that night. And at the same time, that event's going to ensure a tremendous future for Southeastern. Wow. All right. So honestly, Ron, you don't have to go any further at this point. I've already blown away by what happened in this studcast. Now, I can't wait to get to number 197. You slam dunked 196. So way to go on that. So 197 is coming up, and that is going to be absolutely huge. All right, folks on Facebook, to become friends with a legend, simply like and follow the stud on the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, or author Ron Fuller Welch page. On Twitter and Instagram, Ron Fuller Welch on both. The tremendous Southeastern Continental Video 5-pack is still available at tnstud.com. 67 historic matches, 12 hours of action with stars too many to name, many of which are in the Hall of Fame today. Best old school collection of the sport anywhere. Get it now at tnstud.com. Click Stud Store. Only $39.99, including shipping. Own your piece of wrestling history and do it right after this stud cast new super stud cast number 40 is on fire the honky talk man jerry briscoe robert fuller kevin sullivan the lord humongous and les thatcher join ron in part one as a prelude to upcoming stud cast number 200 part two of super stud cast number 40 will include seven more stars and Hall of Famers, tnstud.com or patreon.com 
slash studcast gets you three hours of history for only $2.99. And let's mention Brutus one more time. Ron's man-eating lion, Brutus, the one we spoke about in today's studcast, is roaring up the Amazon charts. Being compared to Jaws, it has more than 40 five-star reviews. A thriller like no other at Amazon.com, Brutus Novel, or get the extremely rare, personally autographed version from Ron himself at his website, tnstud.com. Click on Stud Store, get hooked up, get this before it becomes a movie. A historic stud cast today, Ron. Congratulations. Sounds like next week is going to be just as good. No wonder you're creating new listeners worldwide every week. Well done. Well, it's it's more than just me, Dave. It's you as well. We are creating these listeners, Dave. And I really enjoyed this one. And, and I'm sure the finish of it will be just as good next week. I want to thank, man, the con- continually growing number of fans and those that pass the word along about what we do here. And uh, please take care of yourselves out there, everybody, and may God bless us all. God bless you too, Stud. This is David Summers reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction. For another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.